Peace girl, peace The English translation of this Cree prayer song by Carmel Crowchild. All things holy under the sun bless me. All things holy under the sun bless creation. Hello, my friendly folks with an X. I am doing these podcasts ahead of time because next week on Monday and Wednesday, I will be back home in Saskatchewan, uh, visiting my mom, which is lovely, and recording for Access 7 Talk of the Town. Um, It might be called Access Now instead of Access 7 um, because they were doing a name change. So this little talk show is pretty cool, and I line up some interviews with people from around my hometown who are interesting and timely and fun and I head there every couple of months to do these interviews so it will be interesting to see what happens this time how much COVID has changed things uh, whether we we record wearing masks which is entirely possible Um, but I'm looking forward to it It's been so interesting for me revisiting this story. My friend Lois made a comment on Facebook, remembering the oh so many years ago that we read it and edited it it and worked on it um, at her cabin and that was a lovely time. I, I, there's so many things about this podcast and even the story that I don't know. I don't know if the sound is good enough. I feel like my Uh, S's are as loud as they could possibly be and every P is popping but I'm going to keep going Uh, I question if the story is good or bad and I'm sure that there's spots that can be improved Um, but to me it it sure does have a lot of feeling associated with it and um, hopefully even a bit of learning associated with it Uh, in one of the portions coming up, I was shocked to realize that I didn't know how to pronounce, (laughs) am I I even going to be able to do it, vehemence. I came to the word and I just totally blanked on it. Um, And thank goodness for Google and for friends. Uh, So even learning small things, learning big things, hopefully that will come out of this podcast. One thing that is really special about this book, and I'm sure that I'll talk more about this as we go along, uh, I'm I'm trained in in doing the um, in administering the Myers Briggs type indicator um, personality indicator, and each of these characters in the book have a MBTI type. So I'm just going to whip through the um, the qualities involved in in MBTI. Maybe you can give yourself a little quick quick assessment, um, or keep in mind that there are um, there are websites online that that you can do this Myers Briggs type indicator at. Or if you're interested in booking a session with me about it, just get in touch. So the uh, the qualities, and we all have all of these qualities at at some level. It's just that we tend to prefer one or the other. Uh, Extrovert and introvert is the first pair. So this is where you get your energy from. 
an extrovert gets energy from outside of themselves. Uh, an introvert dives into themselves to get an energy. Uh, an extrovert will gain energy from being around other people, but an introvert will lose energy being around other people. The next pair is um, how you take in information. So the choices here are sensing and intuition. Um, the letters are actually S and N here because uh, there can't be two I's. <laughs> so this is how you take in information. And if you have a preference for sensing, then you notice details. Um, you probably only need to get directions to a place one time and don't need to be told again. If you have a preference for intuition, you take things in at a gut level and you might miss some of those details. Uh, and you probably do have to be told how to get to where you're going more than once. Don't be embarrassed about it. It's just the way it is. The next pair is uh, how you make decisions. And this is thinking and feeling, T and F. So a person with a preference for thinking makes decisions logically. They say, I have this information and this information, so this is the decision. People with a preference for making decisions using feeling, they go, well, yeah, I have this information and I have this information, but I actually think this decision that might not make as much sense will be better for the people involved. And so decisions are kind of made differently. Um, and then the last pair is perceiving and judging. And I would change these words if I could, because I feel like they're so value-based. Um, so a person with a preference for perceiving uh, likes to just fly by the seat of the seat of their pants. This is the, this is your attitude to the outer world. So people can kind of see this one. A uh, person with a preference for perceiving likes to fly by the seat of their pants. They, they don't necessarily need or want a, a schedule or to be, you know, kept to a really firm um, kind of schedule. They, they make lists, but they make lists when they're already overwhelmed and they don't always really use the lists very well person with a preference for judging likes to know what's coming next. They make lists and they use them. Uh, they're planful. They, they will research things. They want to know where they're sleeping at night. They want that planned in advance. No, we don't want to fly by the seat of our pants. So each of these characters in the, in the book uh, have a four-letter Myers-Briggs type indicator type. And I'm going to look up that document and I'll give you more information about that along the way. Now, on to the story. We waited in the strange silence, standing beside my car, holding the children's hand in mine until Helen pulled up a few minutes later. Helen was the ultimate social worker, ready for anything. She seemed to have all the resources she ever needed at her fingertips. She appeared to know what to do, no matter what the situation. If she didn't, she sure faked it well. Tall and slim, approaching her 40s, Helen was probably the most intimidating person in the office to those who didn't know her well. I'm one of the lucky ones that has been able to spend a lot of time with her and get to know her really well. Helen takes her job seriously and expects others to do the same. She's a wealth of information, a tremendous resource for everyone at the office. The selfish part of me was relieved to see her. 
The unselfish part of me was disappointed that she didn't get the day off as she'd planned. If it had to be measured, I was definitely selfish. Helen pulled me away from the children for a quick briefing. I explained to her what I had come upon and why I was even there in the first place. I told her I didn't know the children's names and that they weren't talking. Let's get them someplace safe. Get all the crap over with for them and see if they'll talk then. I've already talked to the rural department. We can take them to St. John's Hospital. A crime scene tech will take care of what they need. I'd like to be able to use a soft room at the hospital to interview them, but I don't think they're going to have the taping equipment we need. I think we'll have to move them twice, and then probably a third time into foster care. These kids have been very traumatized. We have to be careful. They're probably in shock right now. Leaving the scene, I saw Jimmy chasing after us and stopped to see what he had to say while Helen went ahead with the children to her car. We'd leave my car there for the time being. I wasn't thrilled with that, but policy stated we needed a rider in the car as well as a driver, especially since the car didn't have childproof locking systems. Hey, Anna, where are you taking the kids? Jimmy asked. St. John's. A tech is going to meet us there. I'm not, I'm not sure who. Did I see Helen with you? Helen and Jimmy were longtime friends and colleagues. He knew how good she was and was probably relieved that his little sister didn't have to handle this alone. I couldn't blame him. I was relieved too. Yes, Helen will help me along with this. The kids aren't telling us our, their names or anything else. We're hoping that once they feel safer, they'll start to talk. Okay, I'll see you later, probably at the station. We'll need to take a statement from you too. I won't be able to take your statement. Probably Linda will. If I don't see you later, don't forget about supper tomorrow night. He walked back to the house. He would do his job and I'd do mine, as much as I hated it. My thoughts ran to my father, killed in the line of duty so many years ago, and I thought, stay safe, big brother. Please stay safe. I hurried to catch up to Helen. Until midway through the last century, Saskatchewan's north has been a secluded area peppered with Cree and Dene First Nation people. In the 30s, the white man made the trip up north through rocky roads and wild waterways. The Great Depression had affected the southern part of the province more severely than the north. While the south was known as the Great Dust Bowl, the north stayed lush and green, ripe for the creation of industries such as timber, fishing, and uranium mining. The only obstacle was what was termed at the time the Indian problem. Creating a viable industrious north would depend on the success of assimilating the Indians. A process was begun that involved reserves and residential schools. The north gave the white man hope and dignity. The rise of the white man's dignity was directly proportionate to the fall of the dignity of the First Nations people. In the profession, we see this loss of dignity in a variety of ways. Indeed, there is an Indian problem, but I don't think it existed before the white man. Burton is located on the edge of the Assiniboia Basin, an area rich in uranium. It's a small town suddenly grown big. Fully founded in the 70s up until the 80s, the population was small, consisting mostly of northern First Nation folks and some other longtime Caucasians who welcomed the trials and tribulations of northern life. Through the 90s, as the mines expanded, the population grew. The community had gotten used to the mining and even other industries, 
although the timber industry often kicked up a bit of a fuss when the land-focused aboriginals pitted themselves against the industry-focused bureaucrats. In 1999, the population boom really started following the oil explorers. When the lands around Burton were tested for oil, it was a dream come true for many landowners and First Nation bands. What couldn't be imagined at that time, though, was the result that clear-cutting and drilling would have on the land around Burton and the ways that people would be affected. Once a small community surrounded by lush forests with century-old trees and copious wildlife, Burton had succumbed to the illness called progress and in no time at all had become a large urban center surrounded by barren, marred land and continuously pumping oil wells. A booming retail economy had poured in along with the oil lines. The only part of Burton that didn't seem to grow as quickly was the housing industry. Homeless shelters were sprouting like dried peas in a bowl of water. Time out. Indian residential schools. Oh my goodness. So this is something that I've known about my whole life, but I've learned tons more since starting to work at Musquachis. Uh, more about the effects, a better understanding about generational trauma, and how that contributes to problems that we see now. So what I, what I am surprised about is that a lot of people don't know about residential schools, or maybe know a little bit, but don't see why it's such a bad thing. Or some people will say, well, you know, I have some friends that went to residential school and they, they said it was okay. So I'd like to take a little bit of time and, and just explain some of this. And maybe, maybe you're listening and you already know this. Um, but bear with me and uh, maybe even join in the, the conversation um, which I'm going to put together a Facebook page uh, just for this podcast and, and just for these conversations. So residential schools were established uh, generally, you know, just shortly after 1880. Um, they were established by Christian churches and by the Canadian government, and they were meant to get the Indian out of the kid. They were meant to um, really sort of re-educate, retrain, civilize the savages that were running around the land. If you object to that language, uh, I'm just stating it from that point of view, and that really was what the point of view was at that at that time. So, so residential schools um, become established, and I'm more familiar, I guess, with. Um, one particular school in Saskatchewan, and it was not, it was not closed down until 1996. I went for a tour of the building with my parents after it was closed down in 1996, and they had invited anybody just to come in and take what they wanted—doors, woods, scavenge whatever 
whatever um, whatever appealed to the person walking through. I didn't take anything. I didn't I didn't particularly like how it felt to me in there. Some of the stories, some of the things that that happened at the schools. Uh, kids were not allowed to speak their language, and they were, in fact, very much punished for speaking their language. They needed to speak English or French. Uh, they needed to be a Christian and, and pray the way that they were told to pray. Their past culture was shamed and considered evil. And so that actually psychologically changes your relationship to to the people that you've left behind. Um, so after a period of time, that becomes brainwashing. My culture is evil. My culture is is Satan. Ceremonies are bad. And, and that affects relationships when you're now done at the school. They had a lack of a nutritious diet and were, were served spoiled food. There was sexual assault. There were forced abortions. Uh, there was electrical shock. There was the force feeding of a child's own vomit when they were sick, withholding of medical attention, uh, forced labor, even in unsafe work environments. And if you are interested, you can easily, easily find stories uh, about this. And, and there's another one that I'm looking at right now a survivor story inside Saskatchewan's last standing residential school and the push to preserve it. Um, and I will, once I get this Facebook page up and going, I will post that there as well for, for discussion. So if you already knew this, get involved in the discussion and, and let's, let's talk about it. If you can just imagine yourself having a child in your home, just your home, just the way it is right now, however you live, wherever you live, and then someone demanding, insisting, legislating that that child has to be taken from you, go to school somewhere else. Maybe you are a Christian in your home, and maybe now that child is taught that being a Christian is not the way to be you got to leave that and those people behind. So now your kid's over there, but you're still here. Are you going to pick up a bottle? Is there going to be trauma? Is there going to be violence? Is there going to be trouble? Yeah, there is. And now, now your kid's done school and, and all grown up. But he hasn't had the benefit of your parenting. He's been gone from you since he was four years old. He's a totally, totally different person than you could even ever imagine. He hasn't had parenting, but now he has children and he has trauma. He's been treated badly at the school. Doesn't know how to parent, but now he's got kids. And a whole generation of problems that are just beginning to be healed from with great strength and power and I have huge admiration for the people that are healing from these these intergenerational traumas. These problems were all created. They didn't they didn't exist 
before colonization. Let's have a conversation. Does your child come home from school crying? Do you even really know what's going on in your child's life? Has your child told you about bullying and have you no idea how to approach it? Have you already gone to the school and it seems like they're not going to do anything? At no such thing as a bully, we share the tools with parents to strengthen themselves and their children so they can deal with any situation that life throws at them. Find more information about parent memberships at nosuchthingasabully.com. And now, back to the story. St. John's Hospital is the newest hospital in Burton, a stone and glass structure with the best equipment money can buy and the best staff a northern hospital can expect. A huge change from the past few decades when only minimal hospital care could be found in the north, and there only in the more major centres. Recruitment is tough for northern hospitals. The winters here can be hard. Sometimes there are problems with the roads and supplies need to be flown in. The cost of living is atrociously high, with attempts made to offset the cost by offering northern living bonuses and higher wages. The hospital recruitment committee was careful to give potential new employees an accurate picture of what to expect. They'd learned, I imagined, that when people come expecting things to be easy here, they quickly leave. The function of the hospital had changed over the population burst and economic rise of the past six years. Doctors and nurses were treating patients who were coming out of more violent situations. Drug use and alcohol use were increasing. There'd always been drug and alcohol use here, but softer, less violent use. I'd never seen a pothead kill someone for another joint or a bag of Cheetos, but now crackheads were holding up corner stores or mugging people on the streets to get their next fix. There was even talk of creating a safe injection site modeled from the one in British Columbia but that depended on the approval of the government of the day. The times, they are changing. The kids in Helen walked ahead of me as I looked up at the gloriously curved structure of the hospital. Organic lines, curved without hindrance, appealed to me. Maybe when I left this job, I could be a landscaper, create koi ponds and herb gardens, live as one with the earth. Sounded good to me right now. Realistically, I knew I'd be bored within one season. And how many people in Burton could afford to hire a landscaper anyway? My thoughts were scattered and I knew I needed to pull myself together to focus on the task at hand. The hospital staff were familiar with us, Helen more so than me, and welcomed us happily but with quiet concern. It was clear that they had been notified we were on our way. As we approached the soft room, I saw Stan Ponsky, the crime scene technician, standing near the doorway. He looked like he'd been waiting a while. Likely he had shared a few of the details with the nurses who were urgently but calmly shuffling us towards the soft room. Helen and I settled the children on the couch. Again we asked them their names, and again we were met with silence. Hospital administration was going to love this one, I thought, as I wondered who they were going to name on the bill that the kids would rack up. Wouldn't matter anyway, the kids would be in the care of child protection and they'd probably just name us as guardians. Again, I found my brain scattering. I really needed to start focusing. These questions I was asking about money and koi ponds mattered about as much as a piece of driftwood in the ocean. No names, no answers. 
It was time to see if the evidence on the children would yield any answers. The children let Stan clean under their fingernails, while Helen and I sat with them on the couch. Their clothes were gingerly peeled off and placed in separate evidence bags, one for each article of clothing. The bags were labeled, and the children were brought hospital pajamas to put on. Stan pulled me aside. I'd like to put the kids under the light and powder them and see if they have fingerprints on their skin. It's rare, but it happens. If they can't tell us who they are and the RCMP don't find anything out from the partygoers, anything we might we find might tell us something. They also might tell us who killed the woman. Good Lord, Stan, I replied. Haven't these children been through enough? I was assaulted by the vision I was having of these two naked babies being laid out on a table with a white light shining down on them, surrounded by techies and coats and masks and gloves. Bad enough that we couldn't set up counseling for the kids until they were interviewed, but to do this to them too? Are there other options, I asked. Probably not, he stated bluntly. We'll print the clothes. I saw some items that might hold prints, the boy's belt and maybe the girl's shoes. It may also be that the blood on their clothes will will have covered any prints. Just think how terrible it would be if we don't find out who these kids are. If they've already been bathed, we won't be able to get any evidence at all. What a drama queen. I'll talk to Helen, I replied, thankful once again for her competent presence. Entering the room again, I could see the girl had rolled into a ball and was sucking her thumb. Unusual for a six-year-old, if she was six years old, but not unheard of, especially after a trauma like this one. The boy continued to tremble, and if anything, he looked more pale than when I had left the room. The children remained in silence. Helen was holding the boy gently with one arm and was rubbing the girl's back with the other. Sexual abuse risks be damned. There were times when children needed physical contact, and this was unquestionably one of those times. I felt like just another bureaucrat as I pulled Helen away from comforting the children to address the fingerprinting issue. As I explained what Stan wanted to do, I could see the pain in her eyes ignite in a fiery blaze. Before she even spoke, I knew we'd be doing our best not to put the children under the fingerprinting light that was usually reserved for corpses. And what's that going to do to them? She responded with passion. I'll talk to Mark. You see if you can get them talking a bit, at least enough to tell us their names. That's where we're going to stop for today, my friendly folks. Thank you so much for following along. I can't even say how much I appreciate your company on this journey as I learn to podcast and share this crazy story full of emotions without any doubt or fear. Thank you so much. It's only fitting that we end this episode one more time with the Cree prayer song that was gifted to me by Carmel Crowchild. So if you choose, sit back, close your eyes, take some deep breaths, and let the sound of the prayer and the knowledge that you are loved and you're here for a reason wash over you. Peace go, peace Gunny will so he mean Yeah, we are a high, we are a high.
Way I am.